crush I. Question life, question humanity, question society, but most of all, question yourself. Evelina started Shulani Project in 2015. It's a creative platform in the housing estate of Shulani, Kaunas, in Lithuania. The project focuses on active engagement with the site and local community through creative processes like collaborative archives, workshops, artist residencies, talks and events. We're happy to have Evelina with us on this episode of Onions Talk Changemakers. Hello, um, thank you for inviting me. Uh, my name is Evelina Oshinkutia and I'm an artist and I can say a community activist from Konas, Lithuania. Um, and that's where I'm currently working on different projects. And um, can you can you share a little bit about? Okay, I I'm probably not going to pronounce this right. I'm going to try my best. Silaniai project. Shilani. <laughs> I know it's very difficult. Lithuanian uh, language. It truly is. Uh, it has uh, this this word has a lot of eyes in it. Uh, it's Shalini. Uh, so I'm working in my native neighborhood of Shalini. Uh, Shalini is a typical housing estate built in the 80s and so uh, when Lithuania was occupied um, by Soviet Union. And it's a quite a large neighborhood of more than 50,000 people living here. And uh, it's if you look around, you see um, multi-story buildings of nine stories and 12 stories uh, and uh, so yes there's a lot of there's a lot of concrete when you look around um, and this is where I grew up um, I was the first generation of children who grew up uh, in this in this newly built uh, estate and uh, it's it inspires me it, it gives me ideas um, my work um, it's it's very rapidly changing it's uh, celebrating its 35th birthday this year so it's quite it's quite a young estate but uh, um, it's 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 vibrant all sorts of people live here uh, from all um, generations and doing different jobs and uh, it's a typical sleeping district so uh, there's not uh, much to do you can say you work maybe in the middle of town somewhere you go to school and you come to the estate to sleep so um, that's why it was called sleeping districts um, there's schools here but there's no cultural offer and we don't have a cultural center or um, yeah, the only uncommercial space to meet would be local life. How many people are there in the neighborhood? Do you know? Uh, so the current count was around 57,000. Um, so can you, can you share a bit about your journey? How, how did you end up back in, your, back in your hometown? How did you end up starting this project? Because, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I found it really interesting. So if you can share a bit more about it to, to listeners. Uh, sure. Um, I grew up here and then I finished secondary school and I left to study in London. 
and I ended up living in London for 12 years, uh, so quite a long time. And uh, throughout the studies, I was inspired by the place where I grew up. I was doing all sorts of work, sculpture work, performance work, uh, photography, uh, video, you name it, um, that was inspired by the neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, and then when I, fin when I graduated, um, I continued thinking about uh, this place that was changing so rapidly and I was really interested in those changes. Um, I was at the same time um, uh, working in some neighborhoods in London in the estates. And I could see the, um, the changes that was happening there. And naturally, I started thinking, so what's happening <laughs> in my neighborhood in, in Lithuania? Uh, what future awaits for it? And, um, and the things that I was seeing, I was not happy with. Um, and I really wanted to start something that would encourage people to ask questions because I felt that um, nobody was talking much about it. Um, and um, that was the first step. <laughs> so in 2015, uh, I started compiling, um, doing lots of research as if I didn't know anything about this neighborhood <laughs> um, and tried to go to national archives in the capital of Lithuania, uh, Vilnius, and to find any visual information that I could find uh, from that time and anything that is being kept in archives of history of this place. And all I could find was five photographs. So that shocked me <laughs> because the estate was by that point 30 years old. Um, and that was another reason this, this lack of, um, of, of any information that kept any archives. Um, uh, there, I'm sure there were, there were so many stories. Um, so many people live here, so many stories, so many um, it's really interesting stuff, um, both visually and, and, and in every way <laughs> happening here and nothing was kept. And I'm sure uh, there was many reasons for that. However, uh, I knew that people in their own homes, they have, everybody has their albums, their photo albums, their family histories. And uh, that was that was the first step that I chose to uh, start the project. And I started with um, walks in the neighborhood. So I announced um, no budget. As um, Alina posting on Facebook, uh, some local groups. Well, you know, there's going to be this walk. I'm going to share my knowledge, what I know about this neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, and we're going to walk together in this neighborhood, look at some interesting sites, uh, talk about them, and take photos of them. And then we can share these photos. Um, there was an exhibition uh, of photographs as well in the local library. Um, and that's how it all started. Um, so, of course, I had to start in winter. Lithuania has very cold winters. It can get up to minus 26 degrees uh, centigrade. Uh, and uh, it was a 
December, one person came <laughs> to this walk and it had a fantastic couple of hours, I think, even. And we talked and I learned something new. And uh, this person learned something new. We took photographs, we shared them online. We spoke about them. Um, then in a couple of weeks, I did another, announced another walk and then 10 people came. And then they shared what they knew and it, it, it grew. It grew and by summer, the walks were drawing crowds of people, both local and from other neighborhoods in Colmes. And I, what I found, uh, I found out things that I didn't know. I found out that this neighborhood where I grew up actually have sites with more than 500 years of history. There, there, there have been villages here before. So really this investigation of my native neighborhood where I grew up that I was supposed to know, um, it seemed like I, I didn't know much at all. And I found out amazing things and we started sharing um, the, the, the images and we started talking about it, which was the, the, the point. Uh, and then, of course, I met people because in walks you meet, um, you meet really interesting people and then start talking with them, uh, what they do, who are they, um, what do they think about this neighborhood. Um, maybe they're some, doing some creative practices as well. Um, and I learned that there are a lot of creative people in this neighborhood. Um, and that they also feel that there is a lack of platform to share their work. That sometimes these amazing painters um, live and paint in their flats and they don't ever <laughs> show their work to their neighbors, nor uh, anywhere in the neighborhood and not sometimes in the city. Uh, they send them somewhere to Europe or to the capital and it just doesn't get seen uh, and the poets as well and lots of different practices so then the project moved on to uh, to other events uh, poetry readings um, I started artist residency and so inviting uh, artists from all over the world uh, to come and stay in flat with a with a resident of Shireni, um to um, to spend ten days per month um, in this neighborhood and make work in public spaces. So together with artists, we would make a plan um, that would suit uh, this neighborhood and uh, and go from there. Um, so far, around I think. Um, 14 artists came um, and the practices varied from um, caricature drawing, paintings, um, sculpture, choreography, film, really it was very varied practices and um, it brought a lot of interesting performance, performance art. <laughs> uh, which was very new um, and, and, and um, so it brought a lot of uh, new knowledge and a lot of otherness <laughs> in this neighborhood which 
uh, brought people together. Um, people were, uh, what surprised me, people were very uh, generous with their time. Um, with, they were keen to ask questions. They were keen to share their ideas, interpretations of the work. And, uh, and what I was anxious before that it's so, these practices, some of them might be quite conceptual and really, really alien and nothing like this you know, in, in, in public space in this sort of estate has never happened before. Um, maybe people are going to, going to have lots of negative reactions to this and also staying with somebody, allowing somebody into your home, into your private space. Um, that is really pushing, <laughs> um, pushing the comfort zone. It's really not pushing, going out of the comfort zone of a lot of people. Uh, and uh, but this this process, I think, what worked that I took it quite slow, um, and also um, I was really really open. And uh, what happened that people who wanted to participate, who wanted to invite um, artists to stay in their homes, they, they, they would come up to these events and say, hmm, maybe next year, you know, it would be a very interesting and experience for me to do. Uh, so yes, artist residences was something that happened, and it might happen again this year. I'm very excited. What's the experience like for, for the people who are hosting, as well as the artists? You, I'm sure you've heard feedback or responses. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so from the uh, local point of view, uh, I've had a lot of uh, very meaningful feedback and that I was very pleased and, and some things that I didn't expect. Um, that would go quite deep. Um, for example, one lady uh, who doesn't speak much English, um, but she she lives alone and her, her children grew up and moved out and she lived by herself in this flat. And uh, she was she was uh, she wanted this experience and. Um, a um, choreographer stayed stayed with her for about ten days and made work uh, in public spaces. And uh, what happened is that they, the, the communication was through Google Translate <laughs> most of the time. Um, but it, it's worked, and they they we formed this uh, friendship and. By the end of the residency, they were making bread together. Um, the lady was sharing her recipes of sourdough uh, and translating everything. And this this cultural exchange happened um, with food, firstly, <laughs> um, but also because, but also culturally, uh, it was it was this this otherness that a person comes from very different worlds um, to, to your home and they have different habits, they have different outlooks to life. Um, they, um, they need different choices in life and they, they, 
they're just in, in, in many, many ways different. Um, and what she was saying that, uh, of course, knowing the history of Lithuania, uh, not that long ago, um, when, when this neighborhood was built, you couldn't be um, that open with people. You couldn't be, um, you couldn't communicate freely. Um, and you had to almost build walls around yourself uh, to protect yourself and your family members. Um, you were not telling much, sharing much about yourself, uh, your family, what to do, just generally the communication was really very much restricted. And you had to be always very careful um, for what you say. And uh, other people, <laughs> um, somebody that's outside your family circle, um, you would just um, not not communicate that much. So what happened is that she felt like now we are a free country. Um, Lithuania has independence, and where um, a lot of changes are happening that are very very positive. But she feels that psychologically, those walls that she built over the years, they're still there, and that it's very difficult to overcome it. Um, and she feels like she wants she wants to overcome it, but. Uh, but it's, it's, it's tricky, it's, it's a difficult process. And that is stopping her from uh, expressing herself, from communicating, from leading um, a full life. And that's, I mean, that's, that's a problem. And I think she's not alone uh, in this. So what happened, uh, uh, and learning English was one of the steps that she, <laughs> she hopes to enable her to, to communicate. In, in a different way with, with different people. And what she felt that this uh, this residency, this experience that was very different and, 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 and strange in many, in many ways, uh, enabled her to have this experience, to open up a little bit and to, to be brave um, and to crumble these walls a little bit. Um, and that, I think that's, even though this was one person that was affected in a deep way, I think it was a very valuable um, outcome from this, um, this work. Um, for people who, don't, who are not familiar with Lithuania's history, can you maybe um, describe a little bit or explain a little bit of what, what it was like before independence? How, how did people live? Um, what did they have to take note of? What, what was the system sort of like? Uh, Lithuania has a very long history of oppression, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, it's, um, uh, it was, it's geographically, if you look at the map, it's positioned in a place where front lines moved constantly. So it was either Russians or Germans or Russians again. Um, also, um, in the, the past, the, the last occupation that we had uh, from Soviet Union, um, people were uh, even sent to Siberia. So there were thousands and thousands of Lithuanians who were, wanted to fight for their freedom and, and, and uh, 
and to to have this freedom of expression where just or thoughts in a different way were put into uh, trains and sent away to deep cold Siberia. Um, and this was thousands of people not that long ago. Uh, also, we had a history where language was banned. So you could not speak Lithuanian, you could not teach Lithuanian. Um, books <laughs> were something that was being smuggled um, and printed illegally by secret printing presses under houses um, and uh, so it's 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 yeah it's a long um, history of different oppressive regimes where you have to be extremely careful who you trust um, and, uh, and uh, this estate was built um, at the very last um, at the very last sort of uh, years um, of looking not being independent yet. You know, what I really love about your project, which reminds me of what I love about Padus Patriot and why I started it, is it's what's so beautiful about it is the human connection. And there is, so you're talking about place, exploring this place and the history, which brings people into, you know, sharing this collective memory, this collective nostalgia, this collective history. And, and it's obviously there is also the intergenerational exchange of people who are older sharing these memories with other people who have been through that period of time with people who are younger, not knowing it, but have lived in that place. And there is something that, that's really strongly connected between community and place and memories. And it immediately brings out something that is so personal. And it, it immediately connects each human to the other human because you, you have something that is shared. Whether, you're, whether or not you know it, whether or not you knew each other, there was something that was shared in that space. And talking about nostalgia, and you were, you were mentioning how artists moved to the, to the mains, the, the capital, moving out of um, Shileni, got it right? <laughs> and, and you yourself moved to London for a number of years and then making having to make that decision to move back and then to start this project i mean i have several questions you know at what point what made you think okay this this is it like i i'm ready to leave london because i'm pretty sure you you would feel attached you have you would have felt attached to that place too i felt the same too and and then to actually go back to your hometown which I feel like in many sense, I mean, for me at least, it would seem a lot less exciting after being in a place like London where you're so exposed to that sort of diversity and that that sort of artistic creativity that, you know, where everything just clashes and you meet all sorts of people and you're constantly being pushed. And then to have to go back to a, a place where, you know, you were just familiar with and you left for a reason, probably to explore something else. Like what what was that... What was that thing in you that made that decision? What was that motivation? Um, first, I'll say that uh, from Shalini, artists did not move, uh, or, but they shared their work outside of the city, even or even outside of the country. Um, they sometimes had no opportunities to move. Um, yeah, and they, uh, a lot of them still live here. Um, so, but 
what uh, what comes to to uh, making that that big decision to move. Um, I think I was I was struggling and I was thinking uh, of what to do, whether I should start this project. Um, I was really battling with myself and think about ethics a lot. And who am I to talk about these big, big themes um, uh, that that inevitably going to uh, going to get touched um, and all these subjects? And then um, it came it came to it came to one thing. Um, I remember back in the studies, one tutor during a tutorial uh, then told me so when do you think you will be ready <laughs> who do you think has this right to speak about these things um, so that's one and secondly I was thinking okay so what if I don't stop this what is going to happen to this neighborhood what change is going to happen and, um, you know, yes, there's a big risk of bringing artists to do these residencies. There's a big risk, um, you know, of, of, of people having very negative uh, emotions about this. But what would happen if I do nothing? And this is the question that I ask uh, myself again. I think that's how I check uh, whether to start something or not. And I really did not like the answer that I get to this question. What would I do if I do nothing? So so I decided to start. <laughs> so that was my sort of risk assessment. Um, and uh, and this, this shift, and I did six months of preparation before I left. I was on the phone, I was working, but I was taking time and working on weekends on preparation and calling people and making contacts again because of course in 12 years you lose contact with people. You don't know any artists. I think I did a couple of trips before to come and just visit local galleries and meet people who might be interested to collaborate in some way or could introduce me of just general art rules. <laughs> How do you do things in Konas? Um, doesn't matter that I grew up here and I speak the language, but uh, I have no idea how things are really on the ground because I never had even working experience uh, in, in Lithuania. Um, and uh, yeah, and what pleased me that, of course, a lot of people said, you are crazy. Do not stop this because, well, you know, you don't have funding. And, you know, it, it, it's a neighborhood where nothing happens. So it's going to be really difficult. Just, yeah, it's a crazy idea and don't do it. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, but I thought that's okay. <laughs> um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of things that I find doing is it's unusual. Um, but that doesn't mean that, yeah, I shouldn't do it. It was interesting reasons that uh, people give um, while giving this advice not to do things. And that's always very, very useful to hear.
so yeah, in short, risk assessment of what would happen if I didn't do this. What was your purpose that kept you going? I don't know. I think I think as an artist and generally you study art, well, for me myself, because you can't not do it. <laughs> um, if I could do something else, I mean, I don't know, be an accountant or do a normal job, you know, um, I would definitely would do it. I would definitely recommend uh, if you can do a normal job and if that feels great for you and you enjoy it, do that. Um, and do art only if you think if you feel like you can't not do it. Uh, so that that was my motivation. Of course, the connection with the place and and all. And um, I think I find creativity something that um, that is essential for for me existing generally and not not existing but living <laughs> because ex to exist you can but to live uh, for me that means being creative as well. But you would not have rather done anything else. You have you have no regrets. No. Do you? <laughs> I learned a lot of things, and if I had to do it again, I would do it differently, of course. But I did not have this information before, and there is no way, uh, you know, you 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 learn as you go along, and every practice that is site-specific, that works with people, you can't be prepared for everything. That is absolutely impossible. Uh, so you can't, yeah, only after actually doing it, you, yeah, <laughs> Do you feel fulfilled? Yes, I would say so. Um, I'm happy with the, um, with the sort of stirs that I managed to do, <laughs> interruptions maybe, but also in, into people's lives in a, in a positive, positive way. So I, I was listening to a podcast today about success and um, and then I was just thinking about it. So the podcast is talking about a lot of times we, we link success with money or, or status or power. But then when, when you get to a point when you're really rich, but you spend so much time just working, instead of connecting with people, are you really happy at that point? And then I'm just thinking about all my artist friends or, or my friends who are like, you know, like you working with communities, working with people on the ground. Like, for us to do this, it's, it's completely not a normal, rational decision because there, there is a lot at stake, you know, it's, it's high risk. You go in with nothing and you don't know how it's going to turn out and you just figure it out. A, a lot of times funding is really difficult. You're working on your own. There is a lot of stress and it just feels like the whole world is against you sometimes. But there is something that, that drives people through it and, and it's motivation and it's purpose. And I think at the bottom of it, that human connection that you get from building a community or bringing people together for, for them to start and build something among each other, that sort of relationship that's formed and being a part of that, being able to contribute to that, I think that that gives a, a much larger sense of fulfillment than however much money you can earn. 
like I don't know, a couple thousand euros more. It's it's more than that, you know, because it, it fills you from from deep inside. And I was just reflecting on that doing this podcast with you, but also previous two podcasts that I've been doing. And this is a recurring team theme. And I'm just thinking about this COVID situation and, and a lot of people feel anxious. I do feel anxious also at some point. And, you know, that, that anxiety is also a lot of times tied to money, financial stability. But I think beyond that, it's, it's also about who, who we are tied to in the community. Like where, where is that support network? Who is our support? And, and in the podcast, this guy was saying, um, so when, when you're in a no money state, people, people don't want to give up on their jobs or leave their spouse or whatever, because they, they are afraid of losing that financial stability. They, they're afraid of being in the no money state. But then when, if you're in a no money state and you think, how many friends do I have who can, who will be there for me if I really need somewhere to stay? And then he said that he could find 50 over friends that he could stay. So if I stay at each person's place for about a week, after one year, I can go back to person number one and I could stay with that person again. And that's very interesting when you, when you think about it, right? Like it's, it's about the connections that we have with people. And immediately by doing socially engaged arts, by bringing community together, you know that you're not alone. And that's, that's so empowering. And that's something that you don't get doing... I mean, okay, I don't want to trivialize other jobs, but there, there is something in there that's really, that's genuine and, and it's different. And I'm, I'm saying, I'm talking, I'm saying this time to talk about this because I've been thinking a lot about post-COVID situation, right? We're in this time where with the climate crisis, with what's happening right now, what exactly should we be doing? And we're running out of time. We know what's important. We know, we know that we should go local. We know that we should, we should be with communities more. We know that we should build that sort of solidarity and trust. And, and what, doing this podcast, for me, it's, always, it's about what are the concrete actions that people can take? And, and I think this is one of the ways, you know, like how, how do you grow roots locally? How do you connect with people? And then how do you support each other? And in there, you it emerges hope. Yeah, lots of reflections. I think I talked too much. I'm gonna bring the give you give you the microphone back. Um so how but yeah but you know but you're talking about very important things and I think everybody um it's it's normal to feel anxious in this situation and it's normal I think what talking to everybody or thinking of what can we do locally and uh, and what what is it to do for um, you know for us artists we're not uh, we're not the i don't know i, I saw some uh, questionnaire about who the essential workers are and there was a list of yep. course artists were <laughs> somewhere at the bottom really honest honest un, un, not essential top one artist uh, and then also people not wanting to do the job either but I think um, looking into uh, what is important for us and I think that's what I've uh, been doing or trying to do um, as much as I can I wish I could do more um, is to look at really examine and to take time and to look at our local neighborhood, um, listen to people 
really try to find this fresh new angle and think about um, the constraints that we have. Um, we have a lot of constraints, right? But we are creative people. We are good at finding creative solutions to that. And uh, how can we uh, help and, and do things in our neighborhood and with our local community that would go with these constraints, but would build uh, resilience and something resilient required that was coming up a lot in the past uh, since everything's kicked off. <laughs> and so what I was doing is um, I started working with urban gardens uh, end of 2018. And that's something, gardening is something that you can do by yourself. Um, and there's been a global surge in, in, in DIY urban gardens everywhere. And, uh, and we have, we have sort of urban gardens here. And even though, um, of course, the planned workshops with, you know, all the tools and everybody working and sewing away and hammering and, um, great stuff, but how can we make things happen and enable people to have this experience that is really both therapeutic as well, not only uh, you grow food that is good for you and healthy and you move around, you go outside, you can, but also it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very much about your psychological health as well um, and how to set up uh, situations where you can do it. Um, so yes, so asking people for help, everybody <laughs> that you can, um, drafting, yeah, every, every promise <laughs> that anybody said that, oh, if you need help, uh, I will help. So just calling everybody uh, and, and setting that up and also thinking of um, other, other things. So what I was doing is um, looking into local nature, which of course this is, we're not moving much and we're, we're, we're walking around our neighborhood, we're walking the dog, uh, and we really much uh, pay more attention. And I was checking social media on, uh, for example, Instagram, the feed of local, um, local roads and nature and the sky just increased <laughs> 200% um, over, uh, over this time. And uh, so yeah, so how can we uh, use this new, um, this new location where we always are, but now we are more, and this new sensitivity to our locality to make something that would somehow come together um, as a maybe disperse, um, but maybe an online uh, community or some sort of a data collection. So we started collecting data about local biodiversity, um, find an app that you can use, even children can use, um, and it's also another activity for parents who, you know, have to <laughs> look after kids at home um, and, and don't go to school. So, so yes, using using tools that we have um, for for data collection for activities 
in the neighborhood and then in the end we're going to bring it, it all together and uh, make a local biodiversity map which sort of this sort of investigation has never happened really in this neighborhood because well you know it's not really nature expected to be a natural place um uh, a, a sort of council estate working uh, site but actually it is we, we've got a lot of surprises um, which is nice so you know, using tools resilience and also one thing uh, that i was thinking about um when you um yeah, were reflecting is about the your own needs own needs of really stripping down what I really need or not what I really need or what would not, not survive without and it's very individual um, we're all different but it's surprising how much can we do without <laughs> and uh, and thinking not not all the thinking just um, of course, financial stability is important and it's important to look at it creatively and I'm not sure whether we want to go into details uh, right now, but uh, both to think creatively about and strip down in that um, that is very helpful. Was it difficult to start the garden project? Uh, the what we had um it's an interesting case because it's not a new garden uh, it has been going on for many many years uh it's in a actually first world war heritage site it used to be a fort so a military structure <laughs> um but for a long time it has been abandoned and it's just overgrown with bushes and just not see hogweed and whatnot. And when this neighborhood was built, um, a lot of people came and they were really, you know, from smaller towns or countryside and growing food was something that you would do. And in the country, uh, back in the day, if you had a big family, you couldn't go like right now to shop and buy things. Things were lacking and uh, food security to ensure that your family has things to eat, you needed to grow food. And, um, and everybody did. Extended family somewhere in the countryside maybe were growing cattle. I mean, you really, really want, needed to be as self-sufficient as possible. And, uh, but some people, of course, couldn't. So uh, seeing a large plot of land that was, uh, that was overgrown right next to their house, that was, you know, right next to their state, was just natural that people started clearing it and, uh, and, and starting gardening them, growing food for their families and doing it for many many years and of course that was completely illegal partisan activities um i was i was asking so well second world war you know and things and how people were growing food there and they were saying yeah and they were doing it carefully <laughs> um which, which sounds just bizarre but um but that's I guess what you do, and and uh, and now the community is uh, is quite. It's a lot of seniors, and of course, a lot of people have passed away. They've been uh, they've been working there for many years, 
uh, and there, yeah, I, I found out about the Gardens Mall end of 2018. Um, and that was sort of a crisis year when um, there was a move shift to um, remove the gardeners. So they were doing it completely illegally on heritage sites, um, which was, this is not something that you hear um, in Lithuania and not many countries, maybe New York, we found the case in New York <laughs> and Rome. Rome. Uh, lots of heritage sites with urban gardens um, in Rome. Uh, so, yes, so I got involved and um, what we first thing was to save gardens, to a, um, work together with the gardeners and form a long-term vision for the place. So I became a sort of a mediator uh, person um, because, of course, a lot of seniors and, you know, having this mentality and, uh, and lots of walls that I spoke before earlier. It's, it's really scary to, uh, and, and unheard of, try to defend uh, a place that you feel yourself and you know that you're doing it illegally as well. Um, but, um, but my, um, and, and my colleagues that joined later, um, the view and knowledge that this is happening everywhere and it's great. <laughs> Urban gardening is really, really good. Uh, and it should be encouraged. And so we found the long-term plan and started working. And then last year, we really focused on uh, getting the message across. Urban gardening, great. These guys are doing an amazing job. Um, and this year, um, the plan was to expand and invite new gardeners, absolute beginners, and to, uh, to garden in very small, meter-to-meter rate beds. Um, so what happened is, of course, we can do the workshops, but I invited help <laughs> um, of a of, of, um, professional woodworker and uh, uh, two of us with masks and really taking care of, um, with all the recommendations that we have all the time. So we managed to build 12 raised beds. Uh, so. Uh, 12 new gardeners or families. Actually, we counted 11 children <laughs> we have. Um, we're able to start for the first time uh, to plant seeds. And that was really, really special. Um, and yeah, it's mainly families and also youth, uh, which was unexpected, I'd say. Um, also, for the seniors, the uh, the gardeners that have been there for a long time, they did not expect youth would be interested in growing food. It's, like, oh, it's mainly a pensioner occupation. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, it's really nice that it's uh, in a different way, but, um, but it's working and everything is very much growing right now. I want to talk a bit about the financial side of such projects. Are you dependent on funding? How, how, how does it work to keep your projects going? Mm -hmm. uh, at first, uh, with, with this particular project, with urban gardens and also with uh, different uh, creative activities in Shalini neighborhood, the residencies and photography, um, I have did project writing 
So we have uh, uh, the biggest funding body is Lithuanian Council for Culture, which has been um, great in supporting uh, the work that's been going on. Of course, that's not enough to survive off and to live off. Um, so you need to think of other ways of, um, of getting income. So I've been um, working, um, giving out educational uh, courses for uh, youth and kids, um, and uh, yeah, and also sort of not guides but walks that would also um, be paid for. So trying to diversify the income streams. Uh, which is important and this year um, we are again um, supported by the Finn Council for Culture um, this year we joined the um, Bosch Stifting Supported um, Active Development Change Program which has been really um, supportive with the network and, um, and just financial support um, and also what is really really important what I was also feeling very anxious about is asking the gardeners themselves, the new gardeners themselves, to contribute uh, uh, that the project keep going. Um, and it's something very new to me. Um, I'm not used to uh, people for people to pay to participate in something. But uh, um, I did a couple of consultations and talking to people. Would that be fair? Would they think? that uh, how would they feel about contributing financially to the project's longevity um, because well some of the things yes you can apply for but there are things that really need to be tested and plan changes and you really need to adapt and those things nobody funds so how do you fund these things and they're really really essential to be flexible um, so, um, yeah, so the gardeners contributed um, small amounts and I counted that it would be one cup of coffee per month. <laughs> so, in Lithuania, it's about a bit more than two euros, uh, but it's, yeah, it's two euros per month per person, sort of, which I think is pretty fair. Can we sacrifice with one coffee, you know, per month? <laughs> You know, when I when I first started my projects, I, I had this huge issue as well. Like, I shouldn't be asking people to pay for anything because what if they cannot afford it? But then, really, the more that I think about it, the more that I talk to other people who are who are in this field. So, my first uh, podcast episode, I did it with Jojo, who is based in Exeter in in the United Kingdom. They have this um, project called Schoolometer, where it's pretty much a pay it forward sort of scheme, where they do a project and then if it was it was good then the people who the participants involved in that project would put money in and choose nominate a, a neighborhood that's around um, to do the project next so they're essentially paying for the next um, project to be to be done and people are actually willing to give and this is this is also gift economy right and and if we think about post capitalism or or how we can we can progress or transit transition into something else then i think there needs to be a change in mindset and i've been thinking about this for quite a number of years now so if we if we want to create more jobs where it's it's about social connection it's about human connection it's it's people jobs then the money has to 
come somewhere where people have to be willing to pay for these services. So if we can re restructure the way that we think about participation, which, you know, I, I've been through lots of readings, discussed a lot about it, you know, how, how can you quantify in, in number or, or money the, the sort of human connection that you can get from, from these sort of projects. And for me, ethically, for a long time, I just, I just couldn't see past that point. But what, if, we, if we look beyond this, if we look at economic structures, then what we're essentially doing is also by, it's also creating new jobs for, for such jobs to be valued and for people to be given that dignity for, of doing the work that they're doing and for, for those that work that they're doing and being put in to be valued at, a, at an amount where it deserves. And if we look at the way that the world works, I mean, we, we've got so much advertisement these days that's completely unnecessary. We don't need that much consumerist products. I mean, I come from a fashion background. There's so much pollution and it's, it's just not sustainable for, for the world going forward. But if we want to think about new jobs that we can create, then we have to shift away from, from this consumption mode where we are you know, constantly buying things that we don't need. But if instead the, the income that we receive for the work we do, we pay for social services or, or rather you know, people who are going to bring communities together or work on, on spaces where you, you create a safe space for human connection to occur, that solves a lot of issues. I mean, it's not 100% foolproof, but people in the community will feel less isolated, less lonely. There are a lot of, a lot of positive outcomes of it, which I think people don't talk about enough. And in the end, it's also when we think about anxiety, we think about mental health. A lot of times, especially in big cities, you, you, can, you can get stuck in it so easily and be completely neglected. But then if there are more, more of such initiatives, more of such projects that brings people together, that brings community together, you immediately have a support network where you can tap onto, which is valuable. And, and things that are valued, people should be paid for it. Not saying that money is everything, but it's the way that we pay our rent, it's the way that we buy our food. And in the end, money, it's just, it's a, it's just a tool, right? It's, it's, not a, it's not an end on its own. I think uh, I think what really changed my beyond things is one trip I took to Warsaw. I think it was last year. Uh, I went there for a conference and I went into this amazing project that had been going on for more than six years at the center of Warsaw and at Urban Gardens as well. And they were doing some really important work. And, um, and, and they had exactly the same issues and questions and about financial stability uh, as well. And um, one thing that I saw that was lacking also in my practice, uh, it was lacking of seeing what I do as work and as a job. This is what I do. Um, this is what I do for work. Uh, so, okay, it's very important. Let's, let's, let's focus on this. Um, and of course, I need to pay rent. I need to purchase food. Um, I need to, you know, <laughs> survive, support family, etc. Uh, and once when the project was going, 
so this is this is sort of a, a, a aha moment for me that with Warsaw last year it sort of completely hit home but uh, when it started to hit home uh, I was invited to go to uh, China uh, to present my work in what I do in Shilini in this international meeting where people from all over the world from Haiti USA everywhere uh, flew in uh, to share their essentially placemaking uh, practices uh, and I was on my way flying there like from Lithuania I had to have myself Helsinki and then fly to China. I was going to Asia for the first time. Crazy, crazy stuff. And I was so excited, you know, just thinking about work, thinking about this thing, and then stopping over in Helsinki and feeling hungry. And then thinking, okay, I think with all this excitement, I forgot to pack sandwiches. Very basic thing. I need, we need to eat with you. And then I looked into my bank account and there was, I think, three euros in my bank account. And the cheapest sandwiches in that airport, quite an expensive airport, was four euro fifty. And I was just sitting there thinking, I must be doing something wrong <laughs> because I'm flying to China to share this amazing <laughs> project, how they were calling that I'm doing in Lithuania, but I can't buy food. <laughs> um, and it was just a little bit sad moment, um, but uh, honestly, we need to look after ourselves and to not go into the situation, which I find talking to people uh, people don't like talking about it. I really try to talk it as openly as I can. Um, but we all allow ourselves one time or another to come into the situation and think, how can we do it differently? How can we allow say, to communicate the value uh, that we give to the community, to the place, to the city? Uh, in a way that would be understandable um, to funders, to community members, and how can we allow uh, them to contribute both financially uh, to, to our work? How can we decide, okay, we do not want to produce stuff. This is not what we want to do. We don't want to sell stuff. There's a lot of stuff everywhere. But we want, we can uh, offer services, we can offer consulting, we can offer educational activities, we can offer practice um, that is consistent, that we're aiming for something, right? And to communicate that. Um, and that's, that's was something that I was really, really focusing. I don't think I'm there yet. Um, I'm learning. Uh, and this is year five <laughs> of Shalini project this year. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and <I'm, laughs> I know, right? Um, and this year um, with, with the support and also I built a support network 
small, 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 but very important support network around myself. So there's an administrator that I work with, there's a photographer that I work with, there's a culture manager that I work with, um, there's these professionals that come, um, there's a yeah, architect that I work with, um, that we, we really understand what we're trying to do and the values of the project um, and there's trust. And only now I can step these first steps in designing the office and, you know, I don't know, uh, a little bit like social enterprise but non-profit that basically funds the community work that's going on that sometimes is difficult to explain. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so only now that's that's happening. But you know, this is really exciting because I've been researching into social innovation and social enterprise as well. And if we can find a model that, that fits participatory art, socially engaged art into social enterprise model, that's going to be the future of work. And And I'm not saying it just just because, you know, I'm trying to make things work, but because I, I really believe in this. And and I've been having these conversations for years now. And I remember a lot of people tell me, Fia, you know, um, you've got to first value the work that you're doing. If you value the work that you're doing, then people will start to value the work that you're doing and they will be able to pay you for the value that you're giving. And it doesn't make sense that if... I mean, we're, well, we are very much capitalist right now, but if you want to change that, it's also changing people's mindset, right? Like, what is the value that you're willing to give? What is, the, what, is, what is it that you're willing to pay for that is going to be meaningful to you? Is it going to be a car? Is it going to be another T-shirt that is the same as five other red shirts you have? Or is it going to be something that is going to benefit your community, your well-being, your sense of connectedness with the place? And I think if we... If we can start to produce or to offer such services, that's going to start changing people's mindset on what they want to spend on. And that will change the structure of the economy. Like, what is it that people are paying for? And eventually, that's going to change the, the kind of jobs that we can create and produce for us to transition into in the future. Because if we, if we look at young people right now, I was lucky enough in the past in the past year where I was doing a lot of um, urban projects and because I was based in an NGO in France and I talked to a lot of young people they're super aware of the things that's happening in the world right now a lot of them are anxious many of them are lost and eco-anxiety is a big thing they don't want to be wasting their time doing work that doesn't matter because they they know that these are the consequences that's their future and if we don't like our generation if we give into the system and we don't start producing things that's different, producing job that is different, producing work that is going to help us transition into something that is going to positively impact not just our environment, but also our communities, then we, we have that responsibility and, and that, okay, I don't really want to use the word guilt or shame, but we have that responsibility on us for the future generation to at least pave a way for something different and not continue the status quo. So I think like when we when we tackle this issue about finances, it's funding is always so difficult and like we artists are not the best at, you know, <laughs> profiting or business and 
because you know it's we we fundamentally go into art not because of money or anything but just because we feel like we have to do it you know it's it's something that is deep something that is emotional something that is it's it's in the creativity that's deep in us or even like this this being in touch of of us personally deep deep within that we want to connect with our art that's why it's so meaningful it's not just it's not just the art itself it's also about that personal journey and it's about the why like why are you doing this why are you on earth and and if we can bring these values and create jobs that will be meaningful for other people and the future generation to be able to to hop on and join us on this journey then we're really starting to create something that is starting to look more hopeful and positive mm. i think what is really really encouraging for me now see that we start to realize this and the young people that you're talking about they feel it very strongly and they do start to realize it. and and that's great <laughs> that really really is um and what is also great that we have time to try things out and we have time to be brave and and to test things uh, we have time to fail we have time to learn and we have time to adapt uh, and just do something else and that testing is so 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 important um and uh, yeah and um, um, yeah so let's really really do it uh and uh, the, the the what you're talking about future work and i think uh, coming to uh creative placemaking uh perspective and performance artists um, and participatory art practices that is what is for me um what i thought is that how can we um communicate this what we do and and, and what is the what are we selling <laughs> what is it that 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 we sell that people um would buy right this is terms that i really hate and i'm yeah. not I'm lightly but just for this sake uh to extremely simplify things uh, what are we selling and i thought that well actually we have a goal we have a vision what we want to do right it takes steps to do maybe five steps 10 steps 15 steps it takes time it takes one year two years three years five years 10 years maybe okay but then we can divide that and those little steps are um, times when people come together and and this time when people come together um and i found felt it very very strongly especially like last year and this year uh is meaningful time together because this step is leading towards the goal that we want to reach the vision that we want to reach that we communicate and this is what we're selling we're selling meaningful time together that leads to something it might not it might be very small it might be i don't know next week we're doing um uh, evening moth watching but you know it's going to be a really really fun hopefully <laughs> this great uh, fun meaningful activity what we're going to learn about our environment we're going to learn about biodiversity we're going to learn about moths and families are going to come together in their local neighborhood maybe what they haven't done before 
uh, and have a meaningful time together. And this step is going to add on to other steps and leave somewhere. Um, and yeah, in, in the, the mindset and the education of how, where we live and valuing hopefully nature around us more and making decisions about our neighborhood in a different way. Uh, so, so yes, how can we um, communicate the steps and, and market uh, time together as um, as a product, not thing, but time. But you know, I, it's not even just the time together or the experience. You know, what you're what you're offering is event planning skills, facilitation skills, mediation, learn, knowing how to listen, knowing how to create safe spaces, knowing how to bring communities together, knowing how to make sure that everyone feels good and okay in a space to take part in an activity. And all of that, these are soft skills that are really valuable that, that you're offering, you know, it's not, it's not just, oh, you know, I'm just going to do this. Okay, everyone be there at 5 p.m. There, there are a lot of, there is a lot of stuff to think about, to plan and, and to work on yourself as a facilitator, which I think is what sets participatory artists apart from other artists because there is this added element where you know we are not quite a therapist we're not quite a social worker but we need a lot of the skills that that they do have in the work that we do with communities because a lot of times you you go into areas where it's vulnerable or it's personal and you need to know how to navigate that and these are skills that we are trained for trained on as well and and it's stuff that you don't just learn from theories or textbooks, which for me, it's, it's bonkers that you have people who write about participatory art but have never done it themselves. How, how do you write about the ethics of it? How do you write about the engagement with people? It's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of going out there, working with people, trying as best as possible to give, but not in a way that's going to hurt anyone or, or to be able to navigate the sort of expectations that people have of you or to balance that out or knowing, learning how to set boundaries, which, you know, these are not easy at all, especially when you are not a social worker or therapist where it's like, okay, it's going to be $50 uh, per consultation and, and you're going to have eight weeks with me. We don't have that. You know, how much do you give as, as, as a participatory artist? How, how how do you navigate that relationship? What is that sort of relationship you have with your participant? And all of these come into place into into the service that we are offering. And it's it should be valued because it's a lot of work in there. Yes, absolutely. I must say that I oversimplified and everything that you say I absolutely agree with. Um, yes. Uh, the, the the social work aspect and a psychologist aspect and um, I agree with you we get into situations that um, are can be hard um, psychologically and you need to be prepared and sometimes well you can't be prepared you just you just have to deal with it and, and in a in a human way um, from your personal perspective and that's as good as you can get. Um, but you, you do get these skills, and usually, if you if you choose the practice and you do it for many years, you you, you learn a lot, and, and um, you build uh, on skills and you build on experience. Um, and that is absolutely what is very very valuable, and, and that's what 
that's what we offer. And it's about empathy and it's about relational skills, both of which are super important in the time that we live in now. Because how, how do we go forward? It's not going to be about profits, you know, it's not it's not going to be about materialistic stuff. It's about it's about these values where how how do you be human? <laughs> how 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 can we be human to each other? I think like that's super important. But also one thing that I wanted to add on was um, honesty and transparency. Because I think a lot of times people will understand if you explain, like, look, this is this is what I'm doing to to do this project. And actually it's a lot of work. And it will really help if if I'm paid for this work, if you if you value this experience that you're getting. And I think communicating that be it um, verbally in person or, or on a website somewhere or just, you know, showing and, and being really transparent about it. Like this is, this is how much time I'm actually spending working on that. This is how much work I'm doing. These are all the things that maybe you don't see as, um, as someone who's not organizing, but this is how much effort goes into this. And it would be great if, if the time that I put in can be paid for the work that I'm doing. And I think from there, that would be like a good starting point of actually creating work, creating jobs out of what, what we do. I think that's, that's a very interesting question that I have not found answer yet of how to communicate all this. Because what, of course, the participant uh, sees and experiences is the, the very the very end of the process, a very small part of the process, right? Because they come and there's an activity or an event or uh, something's happening and they see it and they are part of it. Uh, but there's so many things that happen before, after, during, <laughs> um, and, and the preparation is, uh, takes a long time. How do we, um, how do we communicate this? Um, how do we also measure the time? I find it a little bit difficult sometimes, to be honest, to measure time that I spend uh, on the project because it's, well, for me, it is full time. Um, yeah. And uh, a lot of people find it difficult to understand sometimes, especially at the very start when I was at a uh, research stage and also working with gardeners. So mostly I would be drinking tea and talking. <laughs> So how does that work? But actually that's directly contributing to what is happening uh, later on. Uh, so it's, it's yeah, it's the, the communication of how long it takes, what needs to be done before uh, and after and, and all other aspects of, of making work is, it can be tricky. Mm. And now I'm just thinking about value, right? Like, so Starbucks coffee costs like what six, seven dollars per cup, and is is a two hours experience that connects you with the community. And actually, it's not even just a two hour thing for you. It's it's something that is long term, and it's things that that's being done pretty regularly. Is that experience worth less than a six dollars cup of Starbucks coffee? When we th when we think about value, if we put in put this into terms, maybe that's gonna shift mindsets a little. 
I think I think this uh, really graphic way of comparing, <laughs> yeah. um, comparing physical things that we see, understand, touch, you know, drink, cup of coffee, and time we spend on doing something, experience, workshop, etc. It's um, uh, a good visual uh, comparison, even though it's might sound very strange, but it's understandable for a lot of people, which I find very useful. It's essentially how we can change the way that the, the mindsets of people on what value is. If you can ask your participant or audience or someone out there to do one thing that can help drive change that you are working towards what will it be or even like you know for someone who wants to do something who wants to contribute or wants to change something in the world what what is the concrete action that they can take very simple thing i'd say be present uh, it's 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 so simple um, but it's very, very important. It doesn't cost anything. It, it, yes, it costs it, it, time. Uh, be present and give time. I think this is, this is uh, very, very simple, but you should be overlooked. And, and just say that you're available to help, you know, um, and uh, be honest about what you could contribute that might not be financial. That could be your amazing skills that might completely not be connected with the project, um, you know, um, but, but you never know. <laughs> um, and uh, the most important thing is be present and, and, and be time. I think um, I don't feel completely uh, confident that I can open up enough um, possibilities for people to contribute and working on it. I think by next year I'll be more prepared and I will have opened up uh, more opportunities to, to contribute in, uh, in different ways. So I think for people following the project and, um, and if you uh, like what's happening, if you feel share the same vision um, uh, and values, um, you know, give, give time and uh, contact. Um, come, you know, <laughs> we do all sorts of very, very simple things like, you know, tidy up certain areas that people come together and they just physically do things together or, you know, sometimes there's things that you need tools and you don't know how to do something. So, yeah, come up and ask, that's easiest. What that's do you mean? Being present. What do you mean by being present? Mm, is that when you, um, when there's a project going on, there's always meetings or something that you could come up, come to, um, just go there, <laughs> you know, uh, go there. Or if you can't do that, you know, you can, um, you know, follow on social media, be active, um, you know, give advice or call <laughs> or email and just 
you know um and uh yeah be 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 there <laughs> um it's 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 very very simple but kind of overlooked and i think yeah when you when you come to an event or meeting it's sometimes where so preoccupied with so many things, our jobs, all sorts of things happening in our heads. Um, but yeah, sometimes good just to focus on one thing. But maybe that's um, I'm ranting now. <laughs> I think putting short is the best. <laughs> so thank you for um, agreeing to participate in this podcast. It was very inspiring for me and. It was hopeful. I, I think I, I feel glad that I started doing this podcast because I think I was also at a state where, I mean, when I, when I left France, I was really believing that we are all screwed and, and the only way that we can, we can tackle this climate crisis is if we all quit cities and start eco-villages. And then I reached a point of realization after these couple of months in Canada doing organic farming and permaculture that that's not actually practical or feasible because not everyone can or want to become farmers it's like it's not even a nine to five commitment it's like 5 a.m to i don't know 10 p.m sort of commitment because you're taking care of you're taking care of your vegetables your crops but also livestock keeping away wild animals and and it, and i was really thinking what is it that people can do that can make a difference in in whatever time that we have left now that that we need to urgently make a change working contributing directly impacting something and and creating action that's going to impact communities and people yes absolutely and i think what i hear sometimes that um that i absolutely disagree uh is that people saying well i'm only one person what can i do i can't change anything um you know i might have some ideas but they seem quite strange to uh, people around me i can't change anything by myself alone and i absolutely disagree with that <laughs> um one person can change a lot um you know starting with yourself starting with very extremely small things that uh, that add up um and also leading by example um of the change that you want to see um is also very straightforward and understandable way that uh of, of moving forward and um making change be be the example and make small small changes by yourself and don't even think that you one person can't change anything you can change a lot you know <laughs> even some things might think you're crazy but uh but uh that's okay <laughs> i think we should all be um, a little bit more crazy and take a little bit more risk <laughs> and then who knows the world might become a better place this way leading by change thank you that's a that's a nice concluding statement <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey everyone, thank you for listening. Special thanks to Andrea for the music. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Catch you next episode.